Hello and welcome to episode 114 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Oleggi. I'm Candace Keller. And it's a great pleasure to introduce our guest today, uh, Candace. With us today, we have Malik Shitu, son of Tijani Shitu, a famous uh, photographer in Mopti Mali, and he's also a photographer himself. And we have Yusuf Sakali, the son of an, another well-known photographer from Bamako, Mali, Abdurman Sakali, um, who's also a manager of the Archive of Malian Photography in Bamako. And the URL for this digital project uh, that Candice just mentioned, uh, the Archive of Malian Photography, is AMP. Dot matrix dot msu dot edu. Welcome. If you don't mind, it would be uh, wonderful if you could talk a little bit about how this project began. What were some of the needs or issues that we were trying to address? Uh, with this project, the Archive of Malian Photography? Yes, of course. I like to tell a story about it where I, where I, where I say, in fact, um, with this archive, there is a precise need, you know, it's to, to store correctly the archives and to find a, a way to preserve them from danger and from and climate uh, uh, aggressivity. So this is uh, one of the first reasons myself I uh, was searching for some solution, and I met, you know, in this uh, in this way, uh, Mr. Karan Keller, who has a good idea, you know, about uh, this kind of archive, and come back to us uh, some couple days, uh, couple years later, with this project, and yeah, of course I, I was very interested. And what was very good in the idea was it's not only for my father, but for five other photographers. You know, this is uh, I think the, the way it starts. Just to add to what uh, my colleague just said, uh, when I met uh, uh, Professor Candice Keller in 2004, I was an interpreter for her, and she was working with the Malik City-based archives and other prominent photographers. And I had uh, the opportunity, you know, working with her, and she expressed a concern about how most of those negatives archives were stored. We are missing some of some of we are missing, and they are not properly stored, you know, from the climate, and some are even getting lost. And even those that are available, they were existing at the time. We didn't have any vision how to, you know, to make them available for the for the bigger public, you know, around the world. And she said that yeah, she's going to work on that when she returned back to the United States, and to get some support and the funding, all the tools we need to make that happen, and. After years, as a few years, as Yusuf uh, mentioned, and she was able to make some things happen, and the project, you know, saw the day, and that was a victory in, you know, in my life. It's the first one we ever had. Even the Malian government was never, you know, taking that step, you know, and she took that, you know, and as a concern and want to do something about it, and it made it happen. And this is the first we have so far in Mali. And it worked out so properly. We are so proud to be part of this project. Well, they're both very humble because I'd also like to say that this this really was generated from conversations with both families as well as other families who were not only concerned about the physical preservation of the original archives, 
but also this problem of exploitation and theft that many of these families had suffered because in the 1990s, uh, these commercial archives became uh, important in international art markets uh, with, with really the popularization of people like Malik Sidibe and Sadu Keita. And so uh, dealers, collectors, and scholars unscrupulously, um, you know, they were interested in introducing new or, or people who were less known to this market, and they would come and say, well, we want to have an exhibition of your father's work in this country abroad, but we don't have the means to print large scale here, so we need to, quote unquote, borrow uh, the negatives, and we'll invite you when the exhibition takes place, and of course, they, the invitations didn't happen. It, people had a difficult time. In many cases, they still haven't been able to reclaim their negatives. And there's still cases where, if you look online, they're offered for sale. Um, and so it's a huge problem. And we were trying to figure out how we could address all of these different concerns, so a concern of accessibility, a concern of physical preservation, a concern of exploitation and theft for you know, protection of Malian cultural heritage and the artistic legacy of these photographers um, in some form. And so that's, that's really the genesis of this project. Maybe Yusuf and Malik, if you can tell us a little bit about uh, your family's involvement in the project, because I think the ethics that Candace is talking about uh, are so important to the success and the sustainability of this partnership. Um, can you tell us about uh, how your families have been involved and in what capacity and, and also maybe speak to the uh, uses and the, the value that uh, your families and your communities uh, place on these wonderful archives uh, of, of your uh, fathers and, and colleagues? Okay, yes. In fact, um, Peter, mm, the project has so many advantages. Among them, we can say, for example, it learns family themselves the value of archives. Because it's not like if they were very, I mean, uh, informed about this value uh, before, you know. Uh, there is some stories about, you know, these archives uh, where you see our families sometimes, other times, uh, are not taking really good care of these uh, these archives. It's not only, it's not it's, it. It was also because you know they ignore about it. It's, uh, it's also because they are, they don't have probably you know the, the, the financial uh, capacity you know to take care of these archives. You know there is many reasons, but the truth is that you know sometimes we don't care about it as as it should be, and one thing we learn from the project is that these archives are very important and there is a specific way to take care of them and we learn how to do it and also we are more let's say uh, prepared today you know uh, to manage this archive because you know we have now this digital version which change everything you know in the way we manage this archive you know it's very important to tell this um, let's say family are learning you know with this project on how to do um, tomorrow you know with this archive you know this is very important uh, exactly and we are very interested in general you know, in what what we are doing you know you have to know that uh, each family has a member which is uh, close to, to the project and which follow with uh, 
the team, you know, or last week of the project, you see Malik here and uh, myself, and it's the case also f with all of our family, you know, I, I want to speak about uh, Sori Kouate, I want to speak about Karim Sidibe, and I want to speak about also about uh, Omar Sisse, which mm -hmm. are the son of uh, the other photographer concerned in this project, as uh, Malik and I are today. And this fact that they are closely involved is very important that they are aware of all the different steps and, and different organizations uh, put in place about the project. This project has brought some awareness, which was very crucial. Like, I was born and raised in not a, 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 a little bit away from Bamako. For instance, Yusuf and Yusuf's family, Kuyate's family, Sidibe's family, they have the opportunity to have access to people that are interested in ICAPS. We don't have that, you know, with, with, for a little bit remote place uh, of the country. And uh, <clears throat> so we didn't even have that uh, you know, exposure to people that are interested first, everybody that comes come to Bamako. So I'll mention that the first advantage I'll mention that for Kenneth to take this upon herself mm -hmm. to include other, you know, less prominent photographers, mm -hmm. you know, like my dad, who's just locally known into uh, where we were raised, where he worked all his life. So this uh, project has brought some, brought some awareness. And by being involved in this uh, project as well, it brought some awareness to the, to the living members of the family as well. Because at some point, we even thought when our fathers that left the legacy behind them, we thought since they, they died, uh, we didn't have the means we didn't have the information, the knowledge of what to do with what they left behind. For us, we, at some point, we thought it was over, especially with the coming of uh, colored pictures in the early 80s in, in, in Mali as well. And it also empowered us, which we didn't have. Like when our, each our father were alive, when they were approached by the, I may use the term, uh, uh, treasure hunters, those that, people that come from the West, from Europe, more, more mostly, when they approach our fathers about their archives, they don't they make them feel involved, even when they discuss issues that right. regard, you know, how to use their negatives, to take them, like Professor Candace mentioned earlier, they just tell them, okay, we want to, you know, make you known overseas, we want to arrange for some uh, exhibition overseas. They give them, like, just few amount of money, very little, no, that is so heartbreaking how much they give them. And they just, sometimes they don't even count how much negative they have. They just grab them in bulk, mm. take them. And then they have custody of the negatives. In most cases, even our fathers, they don't even know what they signed for. It's okay, just sign that you gave me the negative, that's it. So, but they don't know the part of the copyrights. With Candace here, you know, involved and leading us in this project, we learn a lot. Okay, copyright is a big deal. We need to have ownership of our negatives. So we can get our negatives, you know, clean, make it known to the world. These are the things. So we have exposure. We had empowerment. We get involved. We have some say, you know, in this. And we know, like, this is gonna be there. This is gonna be a legacy that you know can make our fathers, you know, very proud. And it's gonna be an eternal, you know, legacy also, you know, after they live. And it made us also learn more. And even now. Like we are proud to call ourselves photographers now, you know, because this of this this project. Being a photographer, 
it slots all this value after our father they left and even when especially when you don't have the you know the chance to be on magazine or newspapers but you have chances now you know this is an opportunity for me i never knew i'm going to be in msu you know be in a podcast here and this is my first time here and we have a lot of you know other journals we have our names online this all through this um project so we can never you know finish you know we cannot exhaust the benefit of being part of this project. I would add in terms of raising awareness too, uh, most of the academic community wasn't aware about this issue of cultural heritage preservation and exploitation and theft that occurs with photographic archives. This is something that people have been concerned about with ancient terracottas, so Jene Geno, for example, in Mali, or with the Timbuktu manuscripts, but weren't aware that the same thing was happening with right. photography. So it's raised awareness among another community uh, to be thoughtful about how we interact and the kind of work that we do and to be mindful that we should identify this kind of behavior and not support it. Yeah, it's actually a, a harrowing story. It's so similar to, say, music. The theft by all sorts of Western musicians of African music, and uh, which has been recrafted and represented as if it, you know were their own. And art, of course, the world of art uh, is is defined very much by that type of exploitation. So uh, I'm glad that uh, efforts are being made to make sure that photography doesn't fall into that terrible. Uh, cycle of, of exploitation as well. Now, the photographs themselves are amazing. Uh, there's an exhibit here at the MSU Museum that has uh, many of the, of the fantastic ones. There's going to be eventually over 100,000 images on the website. Uh, right now, we're in the several thousand, and users are encouraged to, to go and explore. Um, I was struck by how each photographer kind of has his own style. This is studio portraiture, by and large. Um, can you tell me uh, a little bit about uh, the, the styles involved and, you know, the way in which these photographs capture people at a very particular moment in time? There's some details in each of the photographs that I've seen that are really quite remarkable that you would never find as a, as a researcher, you would never find in a government archive, for instance. Um, even an oral interview wouldn't probably bring those details out. It's a, it's a body posture. It's the type of clothing. It's the props, like the football trophy that caught my eye, of course. <laughs> um, the particular style of glasses, the shoes, what have you. Uh, so it would be great just to give the listeners a little bit of a taste of what they might find in the different styles of the uh, photographers, maybe. Most of those images we have there, they are post-independence images of West African nations. And our dad were part of those same people, those uh, population. And they were, the f uh, they were at the front row to witness what African people lived in those days. Because many people that, that have never been in Africa and don't know much about Africa, the only image of Africa they have in mind is what they see on the TV about, you know, about everything that is sad, everything that is horrible. But even with, within those chaos, people were living life. They, were, they knew how to dress. And they were imitating the West whenever the opportunity you know, arises. And sometimes they just stayed to themselves as well. They, you know, they portray themselves how, about how they feel. 
it could be, and those photographers, our dad in, in, in questions, they were the best people to capture those moments. Because I don't think it will be easy for a foreigner in the 60s, in the 70s, to know how, you know, what kind of cigarettes a Malian smokes, what he does at home, if he really hugs his wife or he puts his... Because just putting your arm around a wife's shoulder is a big deal. It's not something you see, you know, very mm. often yeah, in public. And those photographers were the witness. They were witnesses of those moments. They were able to capture them. You know, people go to the beach, like you can see in Malik City Base photos, like in Sakhalis uh, photos, you see people who are well-dressed. They are connected to the West Coast, like Senegal, to, up to, to the beach. And to, and if you are connected to Senegal, you are probably connected to France at the same time in those days. Mm. And my dad, you know, from Mopti, if you are connected to what is happening in Mopti, it's very likely that you know what is happening in Cote d'Ivoire, which is also very close to the coast. And we don't just wear, you know, African attires, but sometimes we try to imitate. We knew a lot of popular, you know, musicians in the West. Even the United States, they were very popular. You can see the T-shirts of popular the hairstyles. The hairstyles, glasses. And even some of them are trendy today. If, you know, some of, yeah, some of the glasses, the clothes, the clothing, you know, the shoes, even the, the body posture, as, as you mentioned. Africa, we're not just rigid and just... Lion hunting, you know, people running naked in, in the jungle. You know, we knew how to, you know, people even make time, you know, they get dressed because they want to, you know, capture those moments. Imagine somebody who's going for a, just a passport photo who want to travel to the next to the neighboring countries. They wait till, you know, maybe after seven, eight. The the, the wife will make dinner and make sure everybody ate and go to the studio, you know, the body's shiny, you know, mm. makeup, everything's done. And they get dressed for all, each moment is very, you know, special and unique, you know, for itself. They were able to capture those moments as well. When you see that, you see, oh, it's just in the 60s, it's not too far. But for real, without this picture, we, we would forget already, you know, about this period because, you know, we thought that today that, that period was perhaps sad or stressful or I don't know, but not. These people are really happy. You, This is what you see in the picture and this is very important, you know, as a message for us today. And, you know, for technical aspect, perhaps Canons can give us some, some, some ideas about it, I think. Yeah, it's sort of hard to condense all the layers of, of, uh, of communication that are going on visually in these images from, as you said, the gesture to the backdrops to the props. To the, um, but I would say, obviously, these are photographs that were taken to commemorate important moments in people's lives. So it could be when they were getting married. It could be when they had their first child. It could be when they graduated from high school, birthday parties, um, national holidays, and so on. Uh, religious holidays too and um, but then when you look at the photos um, some people were capturing the way that they the way that they live so they would bring in things that were important to them like a trophy as you mentioned but then in other cases the photographers could anticipate what it was that people wanted to aspire to or what they wanted to convey about them their own identity and so they would have props like a telephone, which wasn't really accessible, for example, in, in Mopsi or a boombox, um, or clothing. And you could break it down. So you could see a picture of a man, and he looks very sort of dandy, sophisticated. Maybe he's a school teacher. He's got glasses on. Uh, he's got a fountain pen and a handkerchief, and he's got a tie and everything. And then you see another photo, and it's the exact same 
glasses and watch and fountain pen and handkerchief. And you're like, wow, who was this person? You know, what what did they live like? You you know what they wanted people to see them as. And the fact that these images moved from different uh, communities. So, you know, pen pals or it could come uh, from the big city to the rural area and to show the family how successful one is mm. or to pen pals in France you had some power over your identity and, and how people would remember you, even if it wasn't necessarily what you could afford. And you have to remember that these are also luxury items, by and large, middle class, upper class. And the, the photographers were significant in this because not everybody had a camera, you know? So you had to go to a professional photographer to commemorate these moments. And that really didn't change until the 1980s, as Malik was saying, with color and amateur photography. Um, but anyway, I could go on and on even about the local aesthetics and ideas and, you know, shaking left hands as a farewell photo and, you know, crouching postures and badinya handshake and all these things that we've written about in uh, articles and books. But In fact, we have uh, spoken about this a few years back in, uh, I believe it was in 2010, episode 37. There's an interview that we did with Candice that really gets into the uh, intellectual dimensions uh, uh, and the stylistic qualities, the aesthetics uh, of um, of the archive. But in this conversation, we've been focusing more on the digital mm-hmm. uh, archive that's been produced by um, our Malian uh, friends and partners and, and Matrix. And maybe one way to bring this conversation uh, to a close uh, is to just briefly talk about how the transition from uh, uh, analog photography, traditional photography, shall we say, to digital has has affected um, the archive uh, because there's a preservation element of the original negatives, uh, but then there's this dissemination also of the images through the digital means, but also people now take photos with their uh, cell phones. So is there still a need, for example, of going to a studio and, and, and doing this wonderful self-representation and capturing of historic moments in one's life? Or, or do people just use their phone and post it on Facebook? Yeah. What's happened to, to photography as an art, maybe? Certainly. According to me, my personal view, there is a big change because uh, I can assume that, you know, uh, if I was a farmer today, I wouldn't go to a studio with my, uh, with my tool, you know, I don't know how to say that. Yeah. And to show it in a picture, yeah, it's with my, we call it Daba in my local language, you know. It's uh, the tool you use, you know, for to dig, you know. And, or if, for example, I am a military, I want to wear just, you know, with my gun and so on and take a picture, you know, to show I'm a, mi- a military, you know. I will do it another way with my cell phone for sure, but uh, the f- this, all the ceremony that uh, was linked to the fact to go to a studio has disappeared. It's probably normal because things should change, but it's also a little bit of pity because it was a kind of, you know, big moment, you know, we, 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 we lose now. And this kind of change, uh, I think we cannot, I don't know if we can say something else about it, but uh, the fact is, you know, it's a supplementary reason for us to be sure to keep on touch these whole negatives, all these pictures, not to lose them, not to, to, to let them, you know, disappear, because really things are changing and things are not going back 
again i think you no know, in the same in, in the same step I, i think i think so it's important for us to 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 keep this archive for this reason and another way to answer to your your question is you know you have to know from these archives you know physical archives which are analog i mean material as you as you as you describe it and we take this this archive and we transform it you know in a digital uh, database uh, i mean you know to be in 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 the same step that you know actual uh, i mean technology uh, can allow us to to do things so uh there is so much work you know in inside you know for example rehousing the neg- the negative in a, in a new packaging system which is more fitted to this kind of situation and which assure to the negative a long long life sec- cycle this is very important and once digital also accessibility is more important you know very very more important than physical archive we have uh, before and all in fact it's a project with so many goals finally you know uh, we can reach in through this work so I, i don't think if i can say everything here but it's very important you know to say that digitalization is in the center of everything here okay i totally agree with you circle but what you just mentioned the digital photography now has conquered and taken over you know the analog photography like we knew it and like you said it's never going to come back to that way anymore so mm-hmm. and there'll be no point of even dreaming it will be too much a fantasy thinking about having photo uh, studio photography in africa in black and white you, you can still have you know some photography but the way we knew it in africa is is gone mm-hmm. but at this point the digital photography even though it it impacted that analog photography but it's also you know provided us with an opportunity to be able to preserve what was old you know to especially and also to reach out to a very bigger audience as well mm-hmm. the digital photography allows us to do that we were to preserve and to disseminate so that's you know that is very valuable to be able to reach a bigger audience so you can be a malifter a malam photographer and have your archives clean and digitized with metrics in Bamako and have your photos known by somebody in Oslo or in Australia so we can never beat that so we still thank digital photography <laughs> for being around that's about wiping away you know for still photography in Africa I would just add that it also makes private archives more accessible locally as well so students and scholars in Mali who are interested from a variety of disciplines um to look at these images now having them digital also makes them more available locally and elsewhere in Africa as it does internationally with regard to the question about how digital photography is changing studio photography in, in Mali I can say um studio there are many studios still in existence um every block has a, a studio almost um and primarily they are for identification photos still although that process too has started to become more digitized by the government um and video is an important part of of studio photography work usually there's a there's a videographer who will go out and film weddings or or other occasions and so that's a big 
business and digitizing CDs that have animation and different elements to it. That's still very popular. Someplace like Baba Keita, the son of Seydou Keita, he has digitized his studio so that now he works only with digital photography and he has all these um, applications from Asia that allow him to create montages and things like that, that that are becoming popular. But by and large, it still requires a lot of means to uh, work digitally because you need a computer, you need, uh, so, you know, you, you need to be able to, to work, have those skills to, to function in Photoshop and that sort of thing. There are more and more digital labs opening so that people can have their own digital cameras and go and, and develop their own film. But uh, it's not that common yet, and uh, it's still expensive. And it's changing also. One of the great things about analog photography in the 60s was it, it it gave uh, photographers some power over um, their work in a lot of ways. And for example, Malik Sidibe at the beginning had to send off his film, as did many others, uh, to be developed in France. But uh, so you had, and if your camera was broken, you had to mail that off too. And so he learned how to fix cameras and to work, and he became really important locally to lots of photographers because of that. Then, uh, then he also had a body of cameras or a collection of cameras that then he could give to young people who wanted to learn photography and he could do workshops and that sort of thing. Now, um, digital photography, you can't locally repair them. So now you're stuck again with, you know, it's expensive and then how do you, how do you fix it? Where do you go? And it's sort of taken some of that agency away. So I, st- I think we're in a moment of negotiation, of transition, figuring out what's the best way forward. And most photographers who are interested in entering an art market right now. There's a conservatoire, a, a program training young photographers at, at a graduate level at the conservatoire. There's the Center for Photographic Training headed by Yusuf Dogodogo. And, and they are all, by and large, wanting to work in black and white analog. Um, and then, in, in some cases, working in digital, because I think Musa Kalapo, who's part of this project, also works uh, digitally. So. There's a lot of opportunity, also a lot of challenges. And so we'll see moving forward what happens. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank uh, Yusuf Sakari and Malik Shitu for joining us on Africa Past and Present. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Peter. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast.com at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.